Good evening. I like that songbook. That was the one we used in Bloomington, and it seemed like all the time I was missing the blue books in Bloomington, and now I'm here with the blue books, I'm always missing the red books that have a little genie on the front. So I'm glad we could sing some from there. I wanted to put up before we started class this evening, we did um, throw around some ideas for where we would take the design um, in the future. It's out on the board as well, and like Mike said this morning, if you got any comments or critique, however harsh or cruel, make sure to give them um, that because eventually it will be printed in places that we will not want to replace it anymore, uh, and we want to hear your feedback before it's too late, and it's printed on things that we cannot take back. So either put those in the little mailbox on my office door or give them to um, the elders if you have them. But this evening, we're going to look in Exodus chapter 18. If you want to go ahead and open there, because we're going to read the whole chapter. But we're going to talk about what we discussed this morning and the place that God has for us in his church and the dangers that can come sometimes when we do that work, when we do everything we think we're supposed to, um, but it doesn't work out for us. We work too hard and we burn ourselves out. So what happens when we get burned out, when we get tired? How does that affect our work? We just quit. That's one solution. We don't do quality work. Going through the motions, we're zombies. What else? Why does it happen? Why does burnout happen to us? You know, we live in a culture that says we're supposed to go, go, go all the time. And yet, if we do that, we know eventually the work that we do produce won't be quality anymore or we'll stop producing work altogether. So why would we get burned out? What's wrong with working all the time? Sometimes you take on too much and there's simply not enough time to do it all. What else could happen? Sometimes we do have time for it all, but it's at the expense of something else that's more important. We work so hard that we take away that time from our families. We take it away from the church. We take it away from talking to people about Jesus. We're running all the time. And I, I told Lauren uh, isn't here, but she would laugh because this is as much about me as anything else. I get so caught up in getting things done that I miss those opportunities to talk to people and take the, the chance to connect with them. Instead, I'm running off to do the next thing. So burnout can affect us in that way. Back in the 90s, there was a president of Harvard University named Neil Ruddenstein, and one of the major roles of any college president, especially in Harvard, is to raise money. That's how they pay their salaries, that's how they get new programs, I imagine that's how they put you know, all those statues there that you don't understand why you're paying tuition still. Uh, and, and for three years he was pretty good at this. He was the school's president and he was excellent at raising money. In fact, he raised one million dollars every single day. Think about that. You know, think who you would call every single day and say, can you give me a million dollars today? And they say, yes, I, I wish I had those kinds of connections. But he was successful at every facet of his job because he was concerned about 
the nitty-gritty of it all. He went to all the sports games. He, he made sure that uh, the donors' dinners, he, he checked the menu on them all. He did everything in, in the university that he could. He went and, and negotiated uh, new contracts for the workers. He did everything. But one morning in November, he overslept, couldn't manage to get himself to work, and so they took him to a doctor, and they said that he had severe fatigue and exhaustion. And the directors uh, insisted that after that, he take a few days off to rest so we could get back. So he did. He went and rested, and he rested, and he rested. And he didn't return to work for seven days. Then it turned into seven weeks, and then seven months recovering from his fatigue. He worked himself so hard that eventually he was useless to the university, useless to himself. He might have raised $1 million every single day before working as hard as he did, but eventually he wasn't raising anything from him. And the church, God has, and we saw it this morning, God has created a lot of work for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this morning we saw that there is so much work and there is so much work in the early church to be done that some really important jobs, I, I think it's fair to say that feeding widows was a really important job for the early church, those jobs weren't being done. They were being neglected. They were being overlooked so much so that the apostles there in Jerusalem, they had to come together and appoint those men to take care of those neglected works. So do you think a couple thousand years later, here in Greenfield, there might be some things that we're neglecting? A few. I think we might. So what do you think? What in Greenfield could we be doing more of? Now, I didn't say, what could somebody else be doing more of? What could we be? This isn't an attack on anyone. This isn't, you know, again, we look at, at Acts chapter 6. The reason they appointed these men isn't because the church didn't necessarily care about these Greek widows. It's not because they didn't have the ability to take care of them. It's just there's a blind spot there. So what do you think? What blind spots do we have right now? Reaching out to others. Absolutely. What else? We need better map services out there. <laughs> better directions. That is very true. We do. When Jesus rose from the grave, he went and, and they weren't his last words, but their last words recorded for us in the Gospels. What did he tell his apostles that they were to go and do? Mm -hmm. And who were they to go out and teach? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of your street, of your workplace, of your family. Right? That's what, who he said, right? No. Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Because Jesus rose from the grave, he has absolute authority over me. That's what we talked about this morning. Jesus, or God set up his church where he got to control things and he put his son as the king. He is my master. Jesus is my boss. And the job that he has given me is to go 
everywhere and teach everyone the gospel, wanting their, uh, leading them to want to become disciples. And yeah, that's an extraordinarily high standard for me to go everywhere and teach everyone. And it's a high standard that if we strive for it, we can see it'd be easy to burn out. If we allow ourselves to run on empty, to just keep going and going and going in our spiritual lives or our physical lives, we won't have anything that we can give to others. You know, Christ's commission to those apostles, though, it wasn't just to me. It wasn't just to Peter or John or the other apostles. It was to the church as a whole. And it's kind of like the national debt, right? It's at $22 trillion right now. I can't wrap my mind around that. In fact, before this, I went and had to look up the, the number of zeros that, that went into that so I could do the math here. And it's a pretty abstract number to me. And I know I'm never going to pay off $22 trillion. I can't write, wrap my mind around it. But if I divide it out to the taxpaying population, I'll find I owe about $157,000 if I paid my share of that. And that's something I, I'm not eager for that bill to come in. I, I'm going to have to write an IOU for it. But at least, you know, 157000 I can wrap my mind around that. Or take Christianity. We have about 7.7 .7 billion people in the world today. That is who Christ is talking about, right? Go into all the nations and preach the gospel. That's everyone, everywhere. That's 7.7 .7 billion people that Christ says makes up our mission field. And that's an incomprehensible number to me. I can't imagine talking, let alone having any real connection with that many people. Just not possible for me. It seems like a hopeless cause, but Christ never intended for me to do it alone. He never intended for me to preach a sermon that's going to affect 7.7 .7 billion people. He never uh, chose elders to try to shepherd 7.7 .7 billion people. He never expected you to invite 7.7 .7 billion people to church. I wrote in here, this is one of those jokes that's not funny because I already wrote it out. You'd have to give us more instructions about parking if you were going to do that. You know, God established a church, and if we run it according to his design, we can achieve this. Our mission field can be 7.7 .7 billion. And it's hard to get a, a real estimate. We don't know people. We don't know their hearts. But let's say there's about 800 million people who claim some faith in Christ. And granted, that's including several hundred million people who you know, aren't doing things according to the gospel. They haven't obeyed the gospel. But Put that number up against our mission field. Christ gave us 7.7 .7 billion people to reach, and I am responsible for how many? About 10. That's something I can wrap my mind around. That's something that I can hold in my hand and say, you know what, I can do that, and I can even pick up maybe a little bit of slack for someone else, too. I can look at 10 people and say, I can invite you to church. I can invite you to hear the gospel. And together, as a church and together with Jesus, we can share the gospel and we can tear down the gates of hell. Together, my slice of the work is reasonable, but making disciples of 7.7 .7 billion people isn't a job that I can handle alone. If we go it alone, we're going to see how quickly it is for us to burn out. And that is exactly what happened with Moses here in Exodus chapter 18. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to open I'm going to read the whole thing. Exodus chapter 18, 
starting in verse 1. It says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all of that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, to whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with the sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Now in verse 12, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, i got to keep repeating that for some reason. You kind of forget, I guess, over time took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit? And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another. And I will make the statutes of God and his laws made known. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You were not able to perform it by yourselves. Verse 19, listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and a place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. You remember that number 10, right? That's how many people that we're responsible for, rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. In verse 24, so 
Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, fifties, and tens. And so they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. So what's going on here? Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes for a visit. Apparently, he doesn't really know too much about what Moses is doing, so Moses catches him up. He says, you know, God's done so much for our nation, and I, uh, the sense I get, I owe him such a great debt. And so people are coming to me, and they're inquiring about God, and I feel obliged to serve them. I feel obliged to judge over them so that they can know who this God who rescued them out of Egypt is. And what did Jethro say when he heard about this? This is not good. The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear themselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself in Exodus 18, 17 through 18. So when Moses led the people out of Egypt, there are at least 600,000 men with their wives and their children, according to Exodus 12. Uh, 37. And all day long, every day for several weeks, several weeks, he's been out there in the desert with these people. He's constantly been judging over their conflicts, over their disputes. And, you know, think about a time that you have been stuck in the middle of a conflict. You know, some are easy to get out of, right? But some, you know, they, they take up every bit of energy you have to get out of that conflict. And now Moses is trying to do that for everybody. Nobody seems to be able to do it for themselves or have any trusted friends or, or anybody that they can go to to settle these disputes. It's all going through Moses. Why? Well, because Moses is the one who knows about God. And now Israel, they want to go and they want to hear what God has to say about their disputes. They don't want to uh, deal with it on their own. They want to go to God. And how can Moses say no to that? This is God's work that he's doing. How could he say, I need to step back? I need to stop doing some of this. Otherwise, I'm not going to have anything I can offer to any of you. I'm going to burn myself out to the point where I am useless. And it's obvious that this is tiring Moses out. He's been doing this early morning to late evening for several weeks now. Jethro can see the fatigue, clearly. Moses' eyes. You can see uh, how haggard Moses looks over all of this judging. So, and I have to imagine this isn't good for Israel either. You know, Moses is wearing down, and, and that's the first symptom, but pretty soon it's going to start affecting them too. You get, uh, you know, in a, a grocery store. It's only got one lane to get out of, and you sit there for hours and hours. It's not good for anybody. You know, the cashier, they're, they're frustrated. They're burning out too. They want to get out of there, but it's affecting everyone else. It's slowing everyone else down too. And so what does Jethro say? He says, Moses, you need help, and here's how you do it. Exodus 18, 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people. So he says, you know, don't shirk your responsibility to God. You still need to stand and serve God so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. In other words, don't quit what you're doing. Continue to serve God, 
Just learn how to share that responsibility with others. You see, God never designed us to work alone. You remember back in Genesis, we were being created. Why was Eve created? You help her? It is not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18, I will make a helper suitable for him. It is an abiding principle in Scripture that when we work for God, we need to work with others. If we don't do that, we are going to fail, and there's a simple reason for that. God's work is too big for any one of us. And that's part of the reason Jesus didn't do his ministry alone, right? He selected 12 men to go along with them, work alongside them, and then when he sent those apostles out, how did he do it? Two by two, right? According to Mark 6, 7 and Luke 10, 1. Why? Well, because the work they were trying to do, they needed more help. They couldn't do it alone. Ecclesiastes 4.10, if one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Ecclesiastes 4.12, and we know this one, right? The, the one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In science and the corporate world, this is called synergism, right? That the collection, the whole, is stronger than its parts. And I read a story about uh, a horse pulling race. I don't know exactly what that is or have ever seen it, but apparently they get horses together and see how much they can pull, and the winning horse could pull 9,000 pounds or something. Uh, the second up could pull 7,000 pounds, but how many pounds could they pull when they are together? It wasn't the sum of those. It wasn't 17,000 pounds. It was 30,000 pounds, nearly twice as much as what they should have been able to pull if the, the parts were equal to the whole. And that's part of the reason why Jesus came to establish the church. There are people who will tell you that you can be just as good of a Christian without us, without the church, without being with the body of believers. There's plenty of Christians who see value in the church but say, uh, maybe an hour a week, maybe uh, uh, twice a week, maybe even. But outside of that, we don't need this support system. We don't need to be talking to each other throughout the week. We don't need to be connected throughout the week. And they deliberately ignore the fact that part of the reason that Jesus went to the cross was to establish this group because he is calling us to incredible things that we can't do alone. Now, Congregations are filled with imperfect people, but when these imperfect people allow themselves to be guided by God's word, they end up pulling together more than what they could do alone. Christianity, we're not a, a lone ranger religion. We need each other to achieve anything. And so when Jethro sees Moses he's trying to do all this job by himself, he says, this is not good. You need help. That was true for Moses in the wilderness, trying to judge all those people, and it's true for the church today. And that's why God created the role of elders, right, for the church. Paul wrote to a preacher named Titus, told him, For this reason I leave you in Crete, that you should set in orders the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Titus 1, verse 5. You know, and it's right there. You know, elders are called pastors in scripture. It's for a reason. It's not an empty title. They shepherd. They overlook. They oversee. Elders work as shepherds protecting the church, leading fellow Christians to follow and honor Jesus. But then elders need help too. Sometimes they're deacons, like we talked about this morning. The purpose of the deacon is to do those neglected ministries where they can be an example. That's what we said this morning. 
so that the elders can devote their full attention to other matters overseeing the flock, according to Acts 6. But there's lots of other people who we need helping in the church. Elders, helping elders, helping deacons, helping me, helping you. You know, a little more math here. There's about, according to the, the big yellow book, right, that lists all the congregations in the country, there's about 40,000 congregations that have a marquee or a sign out front that says Church of Christ on it. About 40,000. And let's be generous. Let's give them each 10 strong leaders. Elders, deacons, preachers, missionaries, 10 people for each congregation. That leaves us about 400,000 leaders in the Lord's Church. Try to divide that by 7.7 billion. 19,314. Is there anyone here who knows 19,314 people? I was really hoping for one. <laughs> I pray that's not what God expects from me because I can't live up to that. <laughs> I would be, not only do I not know that many people, but if I ever tried to know that many people, I would be fried. I'd be burned out beyond belief. And like Moses, any of us trying to achieve that number, expecting any one of our leaders to achieve that number, which is the church's commission to go out into the world and talk to everyone everywhere about Jesus, they can't do that alone. It's simply not possible. We need help, and God gave it to us. First Peter 2.4. It says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have trusted that the Lord is gracious. So first, Peter is telling us that he has given us everything we need to mature in our faith. It's all right here. Everything we have that we need to grow up, that we need to do this, this incredible task that we have before us, it is here before us. We can grow in Christ if we rely on his word. And not only that, he says this is a natural process. If we truly understand God's grace, then we will crave this milk of the word. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, you will do these things. So let me repeat that. What it's saying is if we truly understand who God is and what he has offered us, this is a natural thing that we're going to crave to grow in him. And then Peter continues in verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, you are a chosen generation. It's up there on the screen. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And we could spend a lot of time here, a whole sermon here. Let's just focus on one of these phrases. As Christians, each of us is inducted into a royal and a holy priesthood. And now that priesthood, it was important in the Old Testament, right? What did priests in the Old Testament do? Hmm? Talk to people. What else did they do? They were the intercessors between God and man. As an ordinary person, I couldn't go to God directly. 
What else did they do? Big part of their job. Sacrifices. They offered sacrifices for the people. They had responsibilities and privileges that no one else had, but they also had these responsibilities that no one else had. And God did not establish a church where there should be one or two people running things. He could have. That's kind of what he did in the Old Testament. Only a few people were running things. So there, there's nothing extraordinary if that's what God chose to do in the church, but he didn't. In this new covenant, it was going to be different. He told us so. Everyone could be a priest. So why do you think that is? Why do you think God made every Christian in his church a priest? We don't often go by that name. We don't go out and shaking hands in the community and say, hi, I'm a, a priest at the Greenfield Church of Christ. That's what we are. Why? I can talk directly to God. I don't need a, a, someone interceding for me other than Christ. There's so many people to reach. What we have right now in the Old Testament, we don't really see the, this drive to go out and convert people. That wasn't a big focus. Go ahead. What do you mean? Okay. Well, in the sense of the priesthood, the perfect sacrifice has already been made, and as priests in the new covenant are. Mm-hmm. We are to pick up our cross and, and follow Christ. Mm -hmm. So Christ says that we're to follow him, pick up our cross and follow him, right? And in 1 John, what are we told the fullest extent of that is? Jesus Christ loved us. We're to love like Christ. And what did God, or Christ do for me? Gave his life. Therefore, the fullest extent of my spiritual sacrifice isn't that spiritual, it's physical. I have to be willing to give my life for the brethren. That's the fullest extent of who we are. But speaking on sacrifices, in the Old Testament, we see that's the primary focus of the Old Testament priests. Today, we have a perfect sacrifice made for us. And we didn't see um, in the Old Testament, Moses going and talking to his enemies about Yahweh. That wasn't a big focus. The priests weren't organizing uh, mission journeys into foreign lands like Paul did. But as priests in the new covenant of Christ, the gospel is available to all, and we're expected to share it with all. And God didn't establish a church with one or two people running it, because although the, the, the job description has changed a little bit, we don't go through all the same physical motions as the priests of the Old Testament did. There is a lot of work to be done right here. And if it's done by only a few people, just like Moses, those people are going to burn out. When a church starts to rely on only a few people, it's doomed to failure just like Moses was. Another passage that figures in here is the one Paul wrote to a preacher named Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, at least this tells me two things. First, my job, he's writing to Timothy, right, a preacher. My job is to get other people to be able to teach. 
We should be entrusting others. We should be growing, and our leadership's job is to train reliable men who can go and share the gospel. I can do that maybe from the podium. Maybe I can do it one-on-one. -on -one. You can do the same thing if you're uh, in that position where you can entrust the gospel to other people. And secondly, this passage tells me that we should all be then striving to be able to share God's word. We should all be striving to become those reliable men. Maybe that's directly by teaching, but how else can we be entrusted with the gospel? How else can we share the gospel with others if it's not from teaching from a podium? By our lives. Absolutely. What else can we do? Daily conversation. Building relationships with people. I say that over and over again. I meet I don't know, 100 people a week, tops. I sit in an office most of the day. You meet thousands between you. You meet so many more people that you have connections with than any preacher sitting in an office ever will. You have the opportunity to go out and do things that I came and dream of. What else can we do to share the gospel, to be entrusted with that responsibility? Daily lives, our conversations, building relationships. What else? Taking care of physical needs, absolutely. It's hard to tell people you care when you're not actually caring for them. What else? Got a Grateful Greeters program sitting out there, a sign-up sheet. That's a way. When people walk in this building, they should hear the gospel and they should see the gospel. If we're letting people walk in the door and they're not seeing that from us, if they're not being greeted from us, knowing that they're loved here, and that we want them to be a part of the, the, this victory that we have in the gospel, then we're failing there too. There's lots of ways that we can reach out to people and we can be entrusted with this responsibility. We can spend some time praying for the missionaries who are out doing uh, dangerous work on our behalf. You know, there's lots of different ways we can spend our time helping as we make disciples. But the point is, there's something for all of us to do, and we're all to be striving for that position where we can be entrusted with those responsibilities. So why would God want us to do this this way? Why would he want us to do what many think a, a preacher ought to do? Why would he ask that of you? Why would he ask you to do things? He asks you to take care of a brother in need, help a brother who's stumbling. That, a lot of people say that's the work of the elder. Why would he ask you to do it? Why would he ask you to do the work of a deacon when we saw this morning? They have that special role entrusted to them. Why would he build a church that has leaders, but everyone's to be a leader? Everyone is supposed to be a servant, just like those who we select as our leaders. If, uh, you know, a preacher can do all sorts of ministry in the church, an elder can do all sorts of ministry in the church, but if he does the job all by himself, the church will not grow. The church will not mature. God wants the church to work by this principle. I, I don't, it's such a corporate buzzword, but by synergy, right? Where the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. When everybody in the church pulls together, that they'll get way more done than I ever could standing in this podium. And the beauty of this congregation is that I think we're getting there. I think we're striving for that. There's lots we can keep doing and keep growing, but um, 
You know, it's amazing to see how many people are active here and working in that atmosphere. I think it's contagious for other people that they want to be involved. They want to contribute to the work in God's kingdom. We have a really strong eldership here. And these elders, they, they understand the importance of entrusting responsibility to reliable men. We have great teachers here who take the, the job of teaching seriously. Missionaries, they're not here with us, but they are going out to every nation and sharing the gospel and making disciples. And we have people uh, who are sending cards to people who are, are, are missing and for their birthdays. And there's volunteers uh, who do the bulletin, you know, office work. And we could go on and on and on. And there's still a lot more to be done, though. And, I mean, Moses, he was a great leader of Israel, but he had a blind spot. And his blind spot was he was doing too much work himself. And it not only wasn't giving others the opportunity to do that work, but it was destroying him. And if that happened to a great leader like Moses, it can happen to our leaders here. People should be challenged to ministry. They should be challenged to share their faith, and we should be equipping them to do so. I can't reach and teach all the people you can. Neither can Rick and Richard and Andy and Mike and Josh or Cortland and Rob or Eric and Jack, those leaders that we have. They can't do all that work. They don't know 19,000 people. But I think we all know 10, right? We can all reach 10. And we, when we make it our objective to find our place in the body of Christ, the church, it will grow. And when Paul told Timothy, the things you've heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. You know, there's something here that we can all apply. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you can find somebody to entrust with that responsibility. Maybe it starts out when you're sick. You need to fill in. You can find someone to start training. Maybe uh, you're working around the building. Find someone to tag along. It's intimidating to figure out how uh, a building this size works. I can't even figure out the keys. You know. <laughs> Follow people, get someone to follow you around and, and just let them see what you do. And I, I'm convinced eventually they'll start to help too. If you're going to visit people uh, in the nursing homes or hospitals, it's hard to start doing that. It's hard to go out and, and talk to people who you've hardly talked to before and try to encourage them. So if you're doing that, invite somebody else to go along with you and trust that responsibility to them so they can feel more comfortable doing it themselves. So let's review God designed us to be able to work, and he intended us to do a lot of work. There's a lot to do, 7.7 .7 billion people in the world, and we're to talk to every one of them, everywhere, about the gospel, making disciples. That's a big job, but he didn't intend for us to do it all by ourselves. He designed the church to pull together to accomplish something so great that we can't do alone. Remember our, our friend, Mr. Redenstein from Harvard, right? He was great at what he did, but he ran himself into the ground. He went from raising a million dollars a day to nothing, absolutely nothing, no value to himself or to the university. We need to step up so this doesn't happen to our leaders. God has called us to do incredible things in every corner of the world and right here in this community too, but there's nothing that we can do if we try to do it alone. We read from Ecclesiastes 4 already. Let's see. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, I may be overpowered, but with two people, I might be able to defend myself. But it's that third cord that really makes the difference. It's not going to be quickly broken. You know, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is almost saying, I dare you 
to try to tear a cord apart that has three strands. Who's that third cord? God. If we work together for God, we can knock down the gates of hell. We can shrug off the chains of sin that enslaved us, and we can triumphantly, triumphantly share the gospel so that people want to be disciples. That's something we have to convince them of, that we're going out and telling people, I want you to be a servant. I want you to learn servanthood because Christ showed it to us. That's something that we have to convince them of. I can go out into the world if I'm working together with you and I'm working together with God and I can tell them this is why you want to do it. This is why this is the victory. But it starts by including God in our court, by allowing his son to be the master of our lives, by repenting and being baptized. So if you're here this evening, you have not already taken that uh, free gift that Christ has offered, now's the time to come to the front of the room as we stand.